When I first joined the tools team on League, generally the feedback was positive. Where we were most worried was we were converting all of the data from this old INI format to this new like JSON format. We were actually most worried about affecting players. Where we didn't spend a lot of time is on the people using the tool. We rolled it out to everybody. The next day, like League was on fire. I was getting 13 page documents from designers telling me how bad the tool was. And it was like, oh God, what have I done? Welcome to Building Better Games. Today, we're going to talk about something that sits beneath everything we do in game dev, tools. Every developer needs them to make anything and get it into a game, but they are often overlooked as an opportunity to speed up development. Here's a few questions we're gonna to look to cover. How should you prioritize tools differently during different stages of production or different stages of a company? How do you determine which tools to prioritize and which ones to save for later? What can you do when your leaders won't invest in better tools? How can you influence them? We're bringing in John Eric Khalife. He's a product manager at Hypixel. He's spent time creating art, being a technical artist, supporting art, directing tools development, and being a product person guiding tools strategy. Let's dive into it. John Eric, how do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. I'm John Eric Khalife. I've been in games for 16 years now. I studied computer science and I hated it. So I decided, hey, I want to be a graphic designer instead, and then realized an art degree doesn't matter. My first job in the industry was uh, at Obsidian painting a thousand icons for a Dungeons and Dragons game. And it was like the worst, most menial job, but I was the happiest person in the world because I was making games. And about three years in, I found out about this role called the tech artist. And I was like, oh my God, someone made a job for me. This is amazing. And uh, started writing tools for artists and working on more complex art assets. And Got to go to Sony Santa Monica and work on God of War. Got to go to Riot and work on League of Legends, where I transitioned to product management. And so I ended up at Hypixel, where I get to take my experience working on 100 million player games and my experience working on tools and kind of combine that to create a creator tools and ecosystem for Hytale. So we wanted to talk about tools mostly because it's, I'd say, widely underserved as a topic of conversation, as a thing that people think about when they're developing games. Like, maybe I'll start with that. Why don't we think about this? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. It's hard when you're running a company and you have to choose between, hey, do I create this cool feature that's going to excite players? Or do I build some technology that I don't understand that may help someone maybe deliver more value? It's like a lot easier to go after the thing that's going to excite players. Mm -hmm. And some of the, the tools challenges are like really complex. And when you have like an engineer or someone extremely technical trying to explain that to a product manager or a business person, it can be, a lot can be lost in that translation. So this doesn't get a lot of attention because a lot of people don't perceive it as adding, as being as appealing as adding all the value that a new feature would and all these different things. And of course, people like the three of us then go like, well, wait a minute, if all the, the values that you're creating take 200% longer than they should because your tools suck, you're not actually getting all the value that you think you're getting out of it. But put that table that for a second, I'm sure we'll get back into it. There's another thing, which is now we have third party engines and tool chains. Hey, there's Unreal out there. There's Unity out there. There's the UEFN and Roblox. Why not just grab something off the shelf, either as an engine packaged with tools or just as tools on their own? 
why should I care about this beyond that? And just like, okay, cool, solved it, third-party tools. And everybody knows how to use them. Perfect, great, let's run. I mean, yeah, that could be the solve for your product. And that, if so, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Those engines are usually really good at doing certain things. And if you're trying to make an FPS that's a little open world, yeah, Unreal's like perfect for that. You should use that to make that kind of product. If you're making something else that Unreal's not good at, you're gonna struggle, you're gonna fight it. And it's gonna slow you down. And it can often be faster to build your own thing, especially if all the fancy rendering features that Unreal has isn't important to your product. It can often be faster to build something from scratch, go proprietary, than it is to pull something off the shelf that you're gonna fight. Yeah. I wanna go a a quick step back and keep talking a little bit more about what it means for companies to engage on this topic at a strategic level. I feel like at these bigger AAA studios, where your margins are lower and you have an existing entrenched IP like Assassin's Creed, where you just, you're sort of innovating on an existing platform. That's where I see companies tend to focus more on this. And when I interview developers or people from those companies, those will be the people that are like, how do you not have any tools? Like, how do you even exist? Like we had a tool for everything. Everything was easy. I'm curious, like as I bring all that like what comes up for you as far as like the sort of macro backdrop with all that? Yeah, like funny anecdote, just to kind of paint a picture of how Riot was. Uh, When I joined Riot, our visual effects artists were making visual effects in Notepad. Uh, They were literally, they had a spreadsheet on one monitor and Notepad on the other monitor, and they were copy pasting like properties from one to the other, like (laughs) the transform, the lifetime, and then setting numbers and then hoping that that's the right number that they set because they can't see anything. Yeah, it, it can be pretty bad. I've actually... Like the best tools I've ever worked in were actually at Obsidian, my first job. Because we were a mid-sized company trying to compete in the AAA space without the budget to do so, we almost had to invest in tools to overcome that constraint. And I got to see one of our projects fail because the tools weren't good. And then the next project on the same engine succeed because our tools were so phenomenal that we could build a 25-hour RPG with four environment artists, which is like unheard of. And so... I found something counterintuitive as I went to like companies like Sony or Riot that were like flush with money where their their tools were bad. And I was like, what? Like that, I would expect you have all the money. Why wouldn't you invest in tools? And they almost don't need to because there's just people just knocking on the door, you know, trying to climb over others to get in. It doesn't matter if the tools are good because the people are going to be there anyway. Solve it with bodies instead of technology. Yeah, you can throw bodies at the problem. And you, you have enough people come in your hiring pipeline that, yeah, you have enough bodies to, to just keep throwing at the problem. And so can't make enough visual effects, just hire more visual effects artists, and then we're good. Yeah, because there are tons of those out there, you know? They're just a dime <laughs> a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> we never ran into that problem at Riot, where it's like, where it's like there are like, you know, 26 of these people in the world, and we have 18 of them. It's like... And that's when it fails, right? Is like you run out of people that you can hire. Mm-hmm. You scale too big and there's no one left. With an Unreal, we've kind of like been talking a little bit around this, but when do you invest then in proprietary tools? Like what are the things that you're looking for where you go, okay, I'm building this. It's Maybe it's an RTS and I'm building it in Unity, but I'm getting a lot of complaints that like the tools are bad and we're missing some things, and, and Unity isn't giving us everything we, we want. When do I start? When should I start doing that versus just going like, everybody just keep making it work? 
Yeah, it really comes down to what your business goals are and what you have, what resources you have available to you and what you're lacking. And so if you can't hire enough VFX artists, right, makes sense to start investing in VFX tools. Mm-hmm. If you're epic and you're flush with engineers, but struggling to hire designers and artists, yeah, have those engineers build tools for you to have the artists that you do have be more efficient and more effective. And so it comes down to like, what do you have available to you? And what are your strengths and weaknesses? There's going to be times where there's unique requirements for your product. I think League was actually a great example of this, where we were one of the first live service AAA games, and we had to build a ton of custom tooling around how to ship this game on a two-week cadence with 500 people and make sure they're not stomping on each other's work. And that's where the the GDS came in. You're familiar with it, Ben. But that was a pretty innovative tool to serve our unique requirements in that live service space. And so that's like one way. Sometimes we're, hey, you just need people to be more efficient. You know, like you need to get this game out the door by a certain time. This is your bottleneck. You need to speed this one up so you can hit this deadline. There's times where it's expensive to run a game. You need to reduce the costs and you can invest in saving people's time and energy. And yeah, I think I touched on some of the other ones. Like, you know, you're working in an innovative space, something brand new that's never been done, or that you have some hiring challenges. And so you can invest in tools to overcome some of your hiring challenges. But it it comes down to like, what does your business need to succeed? And if you understand that, you have a much better idea of when it makes sense to invest in proprietary tools. How do you get to that understanding, especially as someone coming from the art and technical art background into the product space? This has got to be something you've been like, you know, you picked a VFX tool and you had reasons for that. But like, how do you get that answer to the point where, oh, okay, cool. I've decided I should invest in proprietary tools and it should be these ones or whatever. Yeah, I can kind of share my story on League and how I got to that VFX tool. So the first thing I did when I joined this tools team was go basically interview all of the content creators on the team. I picked some of the like critical ones, a mix of like seniors and juniors to get as much of a, a broad picture as I could about like, which departments are struggling, which ones are effective, where are they struggling? And I had this whole survey thing, but it was mostly a format to have a conversation with them, to ask some of those questions of like, yeah, what is hard for you? What's easy for you? How bad is it? I looked at how many people there are in each department. I basically got a picture painted of like, what's happening on league? Where, what are we good at? What are we bad at? And where we basically came down to was hey, our design tools were probably the worst. We were spending the most time and effort and creating the most bugs from our designers. The the VFX tools, we were struggling with hiring and you know we were wanting to make more high quality skins was like one of the objectives for the skins team. And high quality skins turns out based on all of our data, like the cooler the VFX are, the more players think it's a high quality skin. And so we like basically wanted more cool VFX. And so at the end of the day, I go to the head of league, Joe Tung, and I'm like, Joe, here are the options. I could do a VFX tool or a design tool. What do you think? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, okay, do you need, do you want to have more high quality skins for League? Is that going to make us more successful? Or do you want more innovative champions and gameplay? Is that going to make us more successful? And he was like, high quality skins, hands down. Like he knew in that instant, like, and the way I framed it was, here's what you're getting by this investment. This is what outcomes this is going to drive. Which one is more important to you for League's business goals? And he had the answer ready to go. I'm really curious, actually, like, what are some of the ways that you've seen people's traditional arguments fall on their faces? And how did you, like, arrive at a place where you developed that product 
thinking approach? How did you get to that place where you're like, I know what Joe wants, right? And I'm going to connect this to the thing he wants and that players want. I'm going to make it relevant for him. Yeah, I think like my tech art background kind of helped there because like what makes a tech artist good is if they're a good problem solver and a good communicator. And guess what? That's also kind of what makes a product manager good. Yeah. And so I was able to like just change the problem I was solving. You know, I'm not trying to solve Mm -hmm. a problem for tools. I'm trying to solve like a business problem instead. And so it was easy to translate that. And I actually have a a story that came up when you were talking about that like tech debt thing. For years, engineers on League were complaining about the rendering code. Mm-hmm. The League had seven renderers, literally seven renderers, depending on what asset you were rendering and what map you were on, it would go down a completely different rendering path. And the engineers were frustrated. They weren't able to prioritize that. The other thing I was looking at is like, hey, why don't we have materials on League? That was part of the problem that the rendering code was so bad, you know, you'd have to make unique materials for every rendering path. But the other part was that I realized as I started like shopping that question around, like asking a bunch of different POs and people, I found that like half of the people I talked to were like, yeah, I've worked on other engines. No shit, we need materials. Like, I don't know why we don't have it. And then I talked to another half of the people and they're like, oh, we don't need normal maps on League. And I'm like, "Eh, materials are more than normal maps. What do you mean by that? And then they told the story about Project Shiny and how that failed. And that led to, therefore, we don't need materials. And so I realized at that point, oh, this is like a knowledge gap. Like, I need to explain what materials are to people. So we're all talking about the same thing. I know how Riot works and that the only way people are going to understand this if I tell the product value of materials or the player value. And so I I took all of these stories from Reddit, complaints players were having. I got this Mecha Malphite splash art that looks like a Pacific Rim. It's gorgeous. And then I look at it in game and it looks like a McDonald's toy, right? (laughs) And And I'm telling stories like, look at how inconsistent all this art is. And we need one person on the skins team that's literally painting over everyone's art before it's finalized to make sure it all looks consistent, right? And so like, I'm telling all of these stories about, hey, here are all of these ways that we're failing players or failing ourselves. And materials can help solve this problem. The technology behind materials, it's not just normal maps. Here's all the cool things it could do for us. And I gave this presentation like 40 different people on League and started to build that like excitement for it and was able to get it added to like the big League board that we had in the middle of the office. But we did it. We refactored the rendering code, made it one rendering code path, and we're able to like actually then deliver some value in the form of materials to our artists. And they started making some of the coolest skins and champions using that tech. I love everything you're talking about. And you're right. I think it, it doesn't just apply to Riot. You're talking about player value as the sort of mantra that plugged into Riot's specific cultural values. But like that could take a different form at a different company. But the the principle there, I think, in your approach is like, hey, understand what those values are. Understand the sort of like wavelength on which people understand and get excited about things. And then communicate what you're trying to do in terms of that wavelength. Yep, exactly. That's really powerful. I want to dive into that a little bit because we're talking about League of Legends. Obviously, we have shared experience there. And there... It's an evergreen product. Yeah. While we were all there, I, I assume that's still the perspective they have is like, we're running this in perpetuity, right? And that means that if I improve efficiency anywhere, 
I have a huge time to gain the return of that improvement. Many game studios are operating where that's not true. Maybe they're moving towards more of a box product release, and they're in sort of the more traditional types, phases of development, ideation, or pre-production or production or whatever. And how do you think about prioritizing tools and what tools to prioritize as we look at phases of development? Yeah, so like, let's start with the first phase, right? Like you're a startup, small team, you don't know exactly what you're building, you're kind of in R&D. I think the tools you want there are probably not yours. Yeah. Like take part of your budget, set it aside for Unreal Marketplace, for Unity Marketplace, assets, templates, tooling. That's gonna get you much further than trying to build all this stuff yourself, unless you're doing something like crazy innovative. You know, if you're building Fez, an indie game where you can go from 2D to 3D, then yeah, like that you have to do yourself. But if you're just iterating on an idea, you can just take stuff off the marketplace and use that. So like, I'll, I'll tell a quick story of like, when I was doing my own startup, I was trying to build a racing game in Unreal. And I ended up finding this asset pack on the Unreal Marketplace that was like $300. And when you're working as a solo dev, that's a lot of groceries, you know? I'm like, oh, like, I don't know if I wanna pay this much money. Then I thought about it, I'm like, man, I'm probably gonna save like a month of work by getting this thing. And that's probably gonna save me more money in the long run than if I just spent the $300 right now. And that skyrocketed, like it helped us get a playable prototype within a couple months. And so it was amazing, like how quickly that helped us move. Now, don't make the mistake I did and think that you can then keep working on that thing. And then you find out that physics in Unreal is tied to FPS. And so the car goes faster when the FPS is higher and the car goes slower when the FPS is down. And so you have to consider these things as throwaway during your R&D phase because they're probably not gonna scale into the long term. If you are at that point where you're starting to scale, you have to understand what your product needs to succeed and what you have available to you. You know, if, if you can only hire one VFX artist, but your product relies on it to be really good, that's like the core part of your gameplay. You're making a MOBA, you know, like League, and all of your abilities shoot VFX, and that's the thing all the players are paying attention to. Yeah, you should invest in speeding that process up as much as you can so that you can get all of the visual effects you need out there and at high enough quality so that your game can ship and you can achieve your goals. Especially if you have low budget. If you have an unlimited budget and you can hire as many VFX artists as you want, I'm gonna be honest, like you might not need any investment in tools and that's okay. Just know that you're gonna pay that price down the line if you don't do it now. Yeah, in terms of the quality of life of your VFX artists. Yes, exactly. And, and that's the trade-off, right? Like, if you don't know if your product's even going to succeed, you just want to get it out there and see if it works in the world, that trade-off might make sense. Or if your product's blowing up and everyone wants to play it like League did, and like the fastest thing you can do to solve the problem is hire people, like, it's an option. It's a trade-off for sure, but it's a way to keep your product moving and meeting player demand. And I think that back to the bad arguments thing we were talking about earlier, I think both buckets of bad arguments are like, appeals to extreme, which is like, I don't want to build tools. That's just a bunch of engineers wasting time on stuff that's not valuable. Or we have to have the most beautiful tools pipeline because otherwise no self-respecting artist will ever even consider working here. You know, like I, I hear that kind of stuff. And I think it's, it's not hard for me to understand why the opposing party dismisses those viewpoints because it it's like there's no room for negotiation or discussion. 
Yep. It's like, we have to have the best depth of field tool in the industry. That's <laughs> yeah. where we got to innovate. And it's like, eh, maybe not. Maybe it's okay if someone has to type in a yeah. few numbers and it takes a little longer and so be it. Like, that's not how we're going to win as a company. I think like the traditional formula I see a lot of tech artists or, or tools engineers use is like, yeah, you take the amount of people that are working on a thing, how big their salary is roughly, how often they do this thing and how time consuming it is to do this thing. And then you kind of divide that by, hey, this is how much time I think I can save on this and how long it'll take me to do this. And I don't even know if that formula is right, but it's, it's all of those numbers combined in some way. And they then say, this is where I can save the most efficiency for the company. And that's great if your goal is to reduce costs overall, but oftentimes reducing costs is not going to help you win as a company. One kind of double standard I want to address that Ben and I actually have spent a lot of time teaching is the idea of cost of change insofar as it connects to iteration or innovation. One of the things I feel like people don't think about when it comes to tools, and it's a shame, is like how knowable is your outcome right now? Because if you have an incredibly high cost of change, if everything you do is painful, it literally doesn't matter if your whole team has just accepted that your shots on goal are gonna be dramatically reduced. And one of the things we know about creative development is that a lot of the time it comes down to shots on goal and how many shots on goal you can take. And so if you have much more rapid iteration cycle, like if your artist can do 10 laps in the time it takes an artist at another company to do one lap, that means you get 10 tries to solve that problem in a way that players are excited about. And it, especially if you don't know exactly what you're making, like be honest with yourself, if you're not really sure what the product is, then that it's counterintuitive, right? You might think, well, well, then that means it's too early for tools. And I'm like, no, you actually may need to really consider tools because your thing is like, get out there in front of the net and just kick that damn ball as many times as you can. So I think that's one thing that is super, super important is like lowering the cost of change of your, your development cycles is a great way to actually like increase your success chances and finding the right thing. Absolutely. Especially if you're in an, a spot of trying to innovate or do something new or fresh. Yeah. yeah the uh, like If it takes you 15 minutes to build your game and launch it, that means you only have, I don't know, like 20 tries in a day to write code and hope it works, right? Yeah. But if, if you can do that in a second, you can just mess around and try things and see what happens. And you yeah. get to iterate so much faster than everyone else around you. And, and hopefully that speed helps you get to the solution much faster than someone else would. I want to pull out to something else you said that I loved because there's a conflation that I think is so natural and you called it out so beautifully where you said, well, this is how I can add the most efficiency. And what actually was communicated was this is how I can save the most money for the studio. And there's this weird connection with like, I think what should be an abstracted resource, which is money to what does it mean for us to produce value and create a compelling experience? And that obviously there is a connection there, but it's often indirect. It goes to like a million hops. You don't know what they are. And if you hire a tools team or a tools engineer or a tech artist and you say, go find the ways to save me the most money, to your point, they may not help you actually reach value. But technically, because, and I would say this is the risk factor, every variable you described, and I think you did the equation almost if you didn't do it absolutely correctly, it was close enough that I knew exactly where you were going. Those are all internal metrics. None of them were external. 
They were everything there was internal. And so it's efficiency in the internal sense that really just meant efficiency of dollars spent on people. And the way that that's working out for the engineers is like, okay, if my salary is X dollar amount, right, or my team's combined cost to run is this amount, then I want us to give that money back to the company. And there's a trap in there where we start endlessly trying to optimize against these internal metrics. And we're, we end up in a space where like, look at we saved you this much money, but it's not real. It's all pretend. And potentially none of it moved us towards actually shipping the game, creating the experience and having any sort of true value from the sense of we get paid, come back. And so I think that I loved how you kind of called that out. And yeah, that's a it's a trap. It's a trap to fall into to think that you're your job can somehow be directly associated to dollars in any way that you can comprehend. Yeah, it's like a it's like a shiny metric, right? It's like you're incentivized, you got hired, they're paying you money, you're incentivized to prove that that money was worth it because you saved the company more than your salary costs. Yeah. So therefore you did your job. Right. And it's like, meh, did the game succeed? Is the company going to survive? And one of the toughest parts is like often the loudest voices can win there. Like I joined a company once where the the artists were definitely the loudest voices and they weren't wrong. Like some of their tools were pretty bad, but I started looking at uh, the product and what was going on. And, and we had like 500 characters and like four NPCs. And I went to my stakeholders and I'm like, hey, so yeah, I know you guys wanted me to work on our tools, but like we can go from 500 to 600 characters but I don't think that's going to help ship this game any faster. I think we should invest in design tools in this case so that we can actually hook this stuff up to things that work in the game. All right, cool. You've you've gone in. You've figured out whether you want to do a third party or invest in some proprietary tools. You've made some selections. You've figured out your stage of production. So then, though, you have to go and you have to build the tool. And, dude, that's hard. What does that look like? What is the transition from, okay, I've convinced everybody of the problem. I've chosen what to do now. Like even let's say that even resources have been provided. Engineers, experts in this have been like, yes, we're going to assign them to your team to go do this. How do you even like start running towards this now? Yeah, let me let me tell you a story of where I failed at this. And then I'll kind of paint a picture from there. So when I first joined the tools team on League, the tool had kind of been built. We had some people that were already using it. And generally the feedback on the tool was positive from all of the people working on it. Where we were most worried was we were converting all of the data from this old INI format to this new like JSON format where everything was validated and you know wasn't gonna crash the game and whatnot. And so we were actually most worried about affecting players. And that's where we spent a lot of our QA time, where we didn't spend a lot of time is on the people using the tool because it was positive. The people using it loved it. So we rolled it out to everybody. And the next day, like League was on fire. I was getting 13 page documents from designers telling me how bad the tool was and why they'd never want to use it. And it was like a, oh God, what have I done moment for me. And, you know, we quickly addressed all of their issues and tried as quickly as possible to rebuild that trust. But I learned my lesson from that, that it's like, you can't trust your early adopters are the same personas as the, the late adopters potentially, or the people that aren't interested in your tool. And so you have to understand who your new customer is, not just your current customer. 
And that like league, especially a live service game, like every team was in a different phase of development. So like teams in pre-production were like, yeah, whatever, we'll learn this tool. Teams in post-production getting ready to ship in two weeks are like, oh God, I have to learn this new way of fixing this bug that I don't know how to do now. And I'm freaking out because I have to fix this so quickly before everything breaks. And they were the ones that were the most stressed, which is like understandable, right? And so the process that I learned how to do, right, from then on to start prioritizing tools is to find that one early adopter, the person that's like super excited to work with you on this, grab them at a point where they're in pre-production on their project, like really early on, gather all of their requirements, their MVP basically, and get something to them as quickly as possible. It's not going to be feature complete. It's not going to have everything that they want, but it's going to be functional enough. And then start asking them what's missing. And they'll tell you, they'll be like, oh, I used to be able to do this thing. I can't do it. That's most important for me. Oh, this thing would be, you know, it's a little harder to do this part, eh, but whatever, you can get to that later, right? And they will start creating your priorities for you. And what I like to do there is just, just ask them the question of like, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to another VFX artist, let's say? And they'll be like, seven. And you go, why? And they'll tell you because it doesn't have these features. It's like, cool, those are the features we're going to prioritize next. And then you get them up to that like nine or 10, and then you go to the next artist and the next artist and the next artist. And eventually you're going to have the thing feature complete where you can just pull the trigger on everyone else. And you have a bunch of people that like built the thing with you that are like so excited about it. And they're going to be your champions. Like that first VFX artist that we built our tool with, she was actually educating all the VFX artists. She was setting up sessions for education for them, teaching them how to use the new tool and the differences. And we basically like swapped everyone to this new tool. And the skins team was the scariest because they were like a conveyor belt of contents. And we only slowed down the VFX team by one week, which is like crazy. Mm -hmm. It was just that amount to learn a brand new tool and system and way of doing things. And then they were back up to full speed, just like that. I want to call out that what you just said there, because there's a couple cool things. But one is there's a reality that even if the thing that you change to is way better than the thing that was already there, there will be a cost in productivity because people have spent some amount of time learning everything about how to make that old tool work, no matter how bad it was. It's just habit now. And almost to the point where sometimes something good can be offensive because it's not what I know. And that you're going to have a slowdown. And so you can't paint this as don't worry, everything's just going to go up into the right forever. There's going to be a dip. The other thing I love about how you did that is you created evangelists in your audience. And you also, you went in curious and humble enough to know, let me get you to an MVP. And then let's just iterate on that and like add what you need us to add. I'm not gonna try to build you a full-fledged tool because we had one example before your team, and I'm sure you remember, there was like, I can't remember if it was a six to 12 month or even longer effort where someone just did all this work. And the only thing that came out the other side was like a tick box that artists had to hit as part of their workflow. And before they didn't have to do tick box. And now that all this work had been done, the engineers were like, we did it. and it was like offensive to the artists because they'd been sold this idea of this person's got your interests at heart. They're trying to do the right thing for you. Don't worry. The future is so bright and amazing and it's coming and it's going to be here. And then you added one step to my workflow. And the 
I would say that going into a hole for that long a period of time and coming out with a tick box destroyed the credibility of that team. I got so lucky that I got to watch people fail a few times at this attempt and I got to see why and make sure I didn't do that thing. And so I learned, yeah, you can't take a bunch of engineers into a silo for six months to try to solve the tools problem. And for all the technical people out there, basically all the data in on league was maybe valid, maybe invalid. You didn't really know. Now, every time they had to press this button and it takes a minute to build their content and make sure it's good to go. And that actually slowed everyone down. And I got to see all the pitchforks and torches come up from the artists and burn the team to the ground. Then I got to see another attempt where the tech artists tried to build the tools with no engineers involved. And they built some really great UX, but oh, those tools were impossible to maintain. And then the tech artists left to another team or left the company and then no one knew how to maintain this tool and just slowly died. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I had to kind of combine those two things together like solve the root cause data problem while delivering good tools to people so they could actually see the value of the thing we were doing. And your tool better damn be good, right? If I was just creating a copy of the visual effects tool that they had before, like the artists wouldn't have cared, but I got to talk to them and find out, hey, you know what? They they don't have undo redo in their tool. Cool, that's a problem we could solve. They don't have a viewport in their tool, so they can't like really quickly see things update. Mm -hmm. And they're like graphing to the curve editor sucks, right? And so it's like, cool, three things that we can fix in the new tool. If it's just equal, if all you're doing is trying to solve that data problem and you create a tool that's equal but different, like no one's gonna wanna switch over. Like, why would they? There's change aversion and it's, it doesn't make my life easier in any way. So I'm just going to keep doing it the way I know. And that is a reasonable thing to do when you're just trying to do your job. Right. Well, so so that actually segues nicely. Okay, cool. You've got this new VFX tool. It's got your new graph editor. It's got your viewport. A couple other nice, fancy new things. You're like iterating on it. And some people are just like, no, I use the old tool. And by the way, the old tool is broken and I need you to fix it. Super common problem for anyone that's worked in the tool space. People don't want to switch. And so you have to give them a reason to. I'm a huge fan of the Kano model. For anyone that hasn't heard of it, it's like K-A-N-O. Look it up. It basically defines how you can prioritize a lot of products, but it works especially great for tools where there's like detractors. Hey, this thing doesn't work. It's crashing. Cool. People aren't going to use your tools. There's performers. The better my like property editing is, the faster it is, the happier I am. And then there's delighters. And those delighters are really what's going to make people excited about your tool and what's going to get them in there. And so if you're wondering, hey, how do I get people to use this new tool? Build a cool thing. Show them why this new tool is so awesome, why you decided to invest in it, and what amazing things it can do for their workflow, what things they couldn't do before. Like Tell that story, and that's going to excite them enough if all of their features are there. You have this very nuanced understanding and knowledge of like what life was like for these creators. I don't know why, but I'm imagining you like sitting next to them on certain days and like watching them work. And I don't feel like that's like trivial because that's a fantastic product approach to building tools. One of the things I've, I realized, which was a light bulb for me working with engineers on technical debt is that like you do a process enough times, like you're not capable of actually explaining to somebody in concrete detail what sucks and what works and what takes a long time and what doesn't, because like a third of the shit you're doing every day, like you don't even notice you're doing it anymore. 
I just wanted to like highlight that because I can tell that you did that and that you encouraged your teams to do that as well. And that's just great product development. Don't do it remotely. Like it could be a good idea to have your tools team actually sit with the artists and like shadow them for a couple of weeks and like watch what they do. It's such a huge part of how I learn what sucks is like, you just have to sit and watch because an artist is not going to be able to explain to you what's going on. Like, they don't know. You're going to be the expert of the solution here. And so you just watch an artist work and you're like, hey, why did you push those five buttons? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Like, this is just what I need to do. Or this is just what I'm used to doing. And, and you just write that down and you find all of those things and it helped them so much. The other thing we did that helped a ton was we had like what we call dog fooding days. So if people aren't familiar, it's like, based on like, don't give something to your dog that you wouldn't eat yourself. And so basically we would have like a build a champion day. And so we would take a day out of our sprints and we just like try to together build a champion and everyone would pick a different workflow and we would actually use our tools. And the engineers were like just taking notes the whole time and, and they knew, man, oh, this doesn't actually need to work this way. Like, this is what I have to do, but I don't need to, and I can fix that. And the amount of stuff we fixed that came out of that was huge. Like, it improved the workflow so much for artists, which was really cool. Oftentimes, the world you're going to enter is this, like, non-perfect world where, like, the tools suck, everything's broken, there's fires everywhere, and you're like, what do I do? You know, like, how do I get out of this world? The first step is you need to figure out where you're spending your most time firefighting and, like, just reduce that little by little as much as you can just like you got to prioritize yourself almost and, and maybe that's like a life lesson too you know you got to prioritize yourself so you can help others get your own time freed up after that start building trust with your customers with your developers connect with them help them ask them what they need deliver those things to them help fix those key things and once they're on your side then you can start working towards that perfect world where you're reformatting all of your assets, making sure they're valid, making sure you can track references between them, doing the things you need to do to like build better tools faster so you can then serve the mass audience. All right, we wanna conclude with a quick run through six questions and, and summarized answers that are gonna help you be successful as you think about tools development, whether that's third-party proprietary, whatever your phase of development is. So. You ready to go, John Eric? Ready to go. Okay. When should you invest in proprietary tools? When you have some unique requirements, when you need more efficiency to hit your deadlines, when you want to reduce costs, when you want to innovate in a new space, or when you're having trouble hiring the people you need to succeed. How should you prioritize tools differently during different stages of production or different stages of a company? Understand your goals. Are you trying to move fast? Are you trying to build something high quality and at scale? and pick one or the other, depending on where you're at, and make sure to double down on your strengths or shore up your weaknesses, depending on what your product or company needs. Whatever one of those is more important to your players, uh, which is what matters at the end of the day. How do you determine which tools to prioritize and which ones to save for later? Ask your stakeholders and understand what your business needs to succeed. It's the product goals that matter the most. What do you do when you want to convert people over to a new tool only to find that they won't do it and now you have to support two tools? Understand what the missing requirements are. If it's a lack of features, make sure to cover those workflows. If it's change aversion, make sure you have some delighters in there that's going to excite them. And maybe they just don't know about your new tool. Find those people to champion it for you or find other ways to champion that tool. What can you do when your leaders won't invest in better tools? How can you influence them? 
one, maybe they're right. Ask them for uh, help. Don't ignore them because they're seeing things that you are not seeing. Two, like understand what their goals are and help them see how the tools you're going to be building are going to help them achieve those goals. How do you measure if the tools you're building are achieving your goals? Yeah, we didn't touch on this too much, but one, like find those detractor metrics. What are your errors? What are your slow performance stuff? Build that trust with your customers, understand if they're satisfied with your tool and it's meeting all their needs and do lots of user surveys or even like sit behind people and watch them work for a bit or get your team to build stuff. That can go a long way for helping you to understand if you're building the right tools. John Eric, anything you want people to be aware of? Any calls to action you have Shout for outs. the people listening? Yeah, um, anything like that. I can't stress this enough. I hope everyone takes away that you should prioritize the game tools that will help your business achieve its goals. Make sure that you are building awesome tools for people that's going to help your game succeed because I want more awesome games out there. And currently at Hypixel, working on our creator tools and ecosystem, we're always looking for more tech artists and tools engineers to join us. So if you're interested, please apply at our website. Awesome. John Eric, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope this helps a lot of people understand, think about, prioritize, and build better tools. I hope so too. Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Again, that's buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Thanks for listening.